Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. So, Ken, I I mentioned on the show a few weeks ago that we were overdue for an update on what's happening in Georgia. And this is definitely the right week to talk about what's been happening in Georgia. Now, listeners will remember uh, District Attorney Fonnie Willis, the District Attorney of Fulton County, which is the the county that contains Atlanta, Georgia, um, has had a special grand jury that has been investigating efforts to overturn Georgia's result in the 2020 election and influence that uh, people up to and including former President Trump tried to bring to bear on Secretary Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and Georgia officials to, you know, find the necessary number of votes so that uh, Donald Trump could be the winner of Georgia's electoral votes in that election. So in any case, uh, this grand jury met for several months. It completed its service and it produced a report. So first of all, can you explain about what the nature of this is, that it was a special grand jury? Because normally I sort of expect with a grand jury, either you get indictments or you get nothing. So what was with this special grand jury that produced this document that we now get to see part of? Well, every state's grand jury system works a little differently, but generally you have sort of standing grand juries that are there for a term that handle the day-to-day indictments and some investigations. And those are people who, you know, they're called in, they serve for six months or 12 months or whatever, one day a week or something like that, and then they're done. But some states have provisions that allow you to convene a special grand jury to investigate some special issue. And those are a little different in a number of ways. They're culturally kind of weird, Sometimes, and hmm. the reason is, you know, think of it this way: if if you and a bunch of friends worked at Starbucks, uh, you'd be working at Starbucks every day, and you'd kind of learn how to work at Starbucks from the daily routine. <laughs> but if they just pulled twelve people off the street and told them to work at Starbucks today, they generally have no idea how to do it and no routine in place and kind of no context for it. So this is like that. Special grand jurors often kind of go off on wild tears just because they're not doing anything routine. They're doing something special by its very nature. This one, there's nothing in this snippet of a report we've gotten that suggested that this one went off the deep end. And so basically, they were instructed to look into this. And the portion of this report that we've seen, there was a question, first of all, should any of this report be released to the public? Because clearly, one of the things that's in the report is some recommendations about whom the district attorney might seek to indict. And the process I gather for that is that the district attorney will then go to a regular grand jury and seek those indictments in part based on the research that the special grand jury has done. So basically, some of the stuff in this report is work product that you wouldn't want to make public at this stage in investigation. But then other other things in the report aren't. And so there, a judge was considering this question. Various news outlets wanted to see what uh, what this special grand jury put together. And the judge basically said, I'm going to withhold parts of this report, including the parts that have indictment recommendations, which, which we'll discuss in a moment. Uh, but there are other parts of the report which he said could be made public. And so what have we seen from the, the public parts of this report? Yes. And this is somewhat normal. Specially convened grand juries are often governed by special statutes that allow reports to be released to some extent. So in the part we're seeing, which is a very small snippet of the whole thing, uh, there are a couple of interesting things. They say that they made a finding or they found unanimously that there was no widespread fraud in the Georgia 2020 presidential election that would have changed the result. Why is that a question for a special grand jury? That sounds correct, but it's it's sort of a weird thing to have a special grand jury opine on. Well, it's it kind of implies what they were thinking about and looking at, because if the if the subject of their investigation was were laws broken in the course of trying to come up with this crazy theory of how we can overturn 
the Georgia 2020 results, then them saying that there was no there there, that there was no legitimate fraud to be addressed by these schemes is very relevant. And it's significant that it's unanimous for because grand juries, particularly special grand juries, you, you always get one or two cranks on there. Right. And, and this was 26 people, by the way. It wasn't just 12. So, you know, you, 24. Right. So it's unusual to get them unanimous about anything. Uh, you know, you could bring Jack the Ripper in there with a bloody knife in his hand and one guy would be like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think that's a signal as to the rest of what we don't have. You know, they formed a very firm conclusion there was no fraud. That doesn't mean they decided people should be indicted uh, for what they did to try to overturn the election, but it definitely does mean they think that those people weren't going after anything that was real. And so then we've also another part of this report that we've seen says that they, they think that one or more witnesses may have perjured themselves in their testimony before the special grand jury. Yes, they said that and recommended that the DA examine that for potential prosecutions. Grand jury perjury prosecutions are unusual. Perjury prosecutions in general are unusual. But that does kind of stand out. And that, again, signals that a sort of invested, involved special grand jury that cared enough that they wanted to actually reach out and make that recommendation, that a majority of them thought that. This grand jury, and this is, again, not unusual, was a little defensive just from what we can see in these portions that have been released. They they emphasize that uh, we had no election law experts or criminal lawyers among us, which strikes me as a little sort of defensive and apologetic. It's like, no, we don't, you're, you're grand jurors. We didn't expect you to be experts. Um, we expect you only to hear whatever expertise the prosecutor chooses to show you in part. Uh, so... They seem a little defensive. They were effusive in their praise and thanks to the prosecutors. And that tends to suggest that they might have some interesting recommendations. Hmm. Or it could just be sort of a pity praise, like when a judge says, oh, Mr. White, your motion was so well crafted. You did such a good job here. Denied. <laughs> uh, so it could be that. But it's interesting. The, the report suggests a, a grand jury that was not asleep the whole time. Well, and, and it's interesting, right, that there had to be portions of the report withheld because of risk that that, that could uh, be unfair to potential defendants in, in future prosecutions. That suggests that there are recommendations about prosecutions in here, right? Not necessarily. Uh, the judge could have made a call that if the report analyzes evidence and sort of the pros and cons is, you know, there's evidence, we're not sure whether it's strong enough that this person committed a crime, that the judge feels that that analysis is unfair to somebody or discloses uh, ongoing issues, ongoing investigations. But yeah, reading this, uh, if I had to make a bet on it, I'd bet they recommended at least one prosecution. Can we infer anything about what that would be for? I mean, can we infer anything about whether, you know, it could be even that former President Trump himself could be prosecuted? I think that would be too strong an inference to draw. And, uh, you know, this week, everyone was abuzz waiting for this to be released. And I was fortunately too busy at work to have to engage in the uh, Kenny rain cloud. Now, now, <laughs> calm down. It's not going to say he did the RICO. And it, it doesn't. It, it, it doesn't, to me, smack of there's something absolutely gigantic and earth shattering coming next. But, you know, like we've talked about before, jury notes, uh, whether they're from a jury in the jury room sending out a 
indecipherable note about something or whether it's a report like this, you can't really necessarily always judge uh, what they're getting at. So here's what I'm confused about about this process, because, I mean, unlike a regular grand jury, this grand jury isn't a body that had the power to itself indict. So I guess it was it was here for an investigative purpose. But the, the district attorney, Fannie Willis, who will ultimately decide whether to seek charges from a regular grand jury, she has her own investigative staff and capacity. What's the reason for using this special grand jury process? And to what extent does it matter what the special grand jury recommended about who should be prosecuted? Because ultimately, Fannie Willis doesn't have to obey those instructions. The regular grand jury doesn't have to obey them either, although Generally, regular grand juries are very heavily influenced by what district attorneys ask for from them. Does it matter what the special grand jury recommended here? Uh, it doesn't have to matter, but often the, re- the answers to these questions are political. So using a grand jury either in this way or in the ultimate decision on whether or not to indict uh, gives political cover to prosecutors. So, for instance, you'll often see uh, local DAs, uh, when a cop shoots somebody, putting it to a grand jury. And when the grand jury says no, no bill, then they throw up their hands and say, hey, what can I do? The grand jury said no. This can be similar. It can give her cover whatever she decides to do. If she goes forward with prosecutions and presents indictments to other grand juries, then she can give the cover. Hey, we presented this to an investigatory grand jury and they thought there was something here. I'm not just going off on some wild dare. And similarly, if the decision is the other way, that's cover for her too. Yes, I invested all this time, but it was to do it the right way. So special grand juries are often they're invoked when something is highly politically controversial or fraught, where there's going to be a lot of publicity and, you know, you don't necessarily think that the standard grand jury is the right venue for it for exactly these reasons. Let's talk about the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation. Um, You have federal prosecutors investigating why these documents were in the possession of the former president um, and whether any crimes were committed in the process of them failing to return the documents in a a timely manner, including the ones with classified markings. Uh, And so now prosecutors are seeking testimony from Evan Corcoran, one of Donald Trump's lawyers, and they want him to testify about interactions that he had with Donald Trump that would ordinarily be privileged. And they're saying that the crime fraud exception to attorney-client privilege applies here. What would their theory be about why this is why these conversations were not privileged? Well, the crime fraud uh, exception applies when a client consults an attorney for advice that will serve them in the commission of a crime or a fraud, that will assist them in committing a crime or a fraud. And the particular communication you're trying to get is part of that. It's sufficiently related to it and in furtherance of it. So that pierces the attorney-client privilege. Here, uh, you know, there are allegations of obstruction of justice, uh, in connection with uh, the Trump uh, documents investigation, there are allegations that the Department of Justice was lied to about the existence or location of documents and their nature. And so if the Department of Justice thinks basically that Trump went to somebody to figure out how to lie to DOJ or how to hide documents from them and he was required to turn over, how to evade a subpoena, uh, then that could all be crime fraud. The Department of Justice has been relatively aggressive recently on crime fraud stuff, which normally you would only see with, you know, mob lawyers and drug kingpin lawyers and and stuff like that. Remember that in the January 6th investigation, the special counsel has been aggressively seeking uh, John Eastman's 
phone. And that in the course of that, they convinced a judge out here in California that the crime fraud exception applied to a number of communications he had concerning, you know, the scheme to overturn the election. So they're more willing to use it these days. Uh, They're being pretty aggressive with it. And, you know, given what we've previously talked about, how the appearance is that false representations were made to the government about the documents and whether they'd been turned over and what they were, then you can see how that might happen. And so I guess the the theory here would likely be something about there there was this statement that was made. The National Archives notices that some documents are missing. They make certain requests. Uh, there's this sort of drip, drip, drip of documents being turned over. And at some point, there is this statement made that's issued by Christina Bob, who's another one of the former president's attorneys, saying that they conducted a diligent search at Mar-a-Lago and they didn't find any additional responsive documents. And we've learned in in news reporting that the statement that Christina Bob issued was initially drafted by Evan Corcoran and that Christina Bob insisted on inserting certain caveats into it, presumably because, you know, as if, if you are Donald Trump's attorney, you should be concerned that he's not telling you the truth about various things that are that he might be doing. Um, so it, it probably would concern something related to that statement. Is that the idea that basically they misled the government about what documents they had looked for and found and whether there were any more relevant documents remaining at Mar-a-Lago? Sure. So there could be a couple of theories here. One theory is Trump went to Evan Cochran and say, you know, I want to keep these. Screw these guys. What do I have to say to them to keep them or have them go away? What, do we, what lie do we have to tell them? That would be crime fraud. But another way it could be crime fraud is if Trump went to the attorney and lied to him and made up false facts. So, oh, well, you know, let's tell them that I already turned it all over because I did. And uh, if he knew that was untrue at the time and he was using the attorney as the instrument for how do I do this, then that can be crime fraud. That must happen all the time, though, right? I mean, we talked when we talked about being a good client a while back, we talked about the problem of clients not being honest with their attorneys and the, and the mess that that creates. It must happen all the time that false statements get issued from attorneys because the client lied to the attorney. Sure. Well, first of all, it never happens to my clients, Josh. I'd like to point that out for the record. And second of all, yeah, but it rarely happens in this type of context where the client's telling you a lie that you then immediately convey to the government. Uh, Because most of the time, most lawyers would do some due diligence and shut that down. So Christina Bob kind of did the right thing. She was clearly not too confident in the veracity of the, rec- of the uh, representations she was being ad- asked to make. So she put asterisks next to them. <laughs> a better lawyer, a lawyer with uh, more client control would basically slap their client around and come up with a strategy that didn't rely on lying to the government. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a good idea, it sounds like. Uh, Mike Pence, there's been, uh, we, we talked about Jack Smith, the uh, special prosecutor overseeing the, the Trump-related prosecutorial matters, seeking testimony from Mike Pence, uh, presumably related to the events on and leading up to January 6th and the former president's efforts to pressure the former vice president to uh, throw out electoral votes that have been sent to, to the U.S. Congress and interfere in the certification of Joe Biden's victory as, uh, as president of the United States. And so Mike Pence does not wish to testify. Uh, 
And he, uh, the New York Times reports that he's likely to assert protection from the speech and debate clause of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, this is a provision of the Constitution that protects senators and representatives uh, from having to testify about their official duties uh, at the behest of the executive branch. And so does that work? I mean, the vice president has a weird role in the American government because the vice president is part of the executive branch. But the vice president is the president of the, of the Senate, breaks tie votes in the Senate. One of obviously one of his uh, duties involves the, the reading of the electoral uh, votes when when presidents are elected in, in, in a joint session of Congress. Can Mike Pence assert the speech or debate clause and, and avoid having to testify? It's kind of dubious. The president of the Senate uh, in his official capacity, but I don't know that that makes him a senator or representative. The speech and debate clause refers explicitly to senators and representatives, and it says that uh, you know they they can't be questioned and brought to some other place. And and usually it applies to keep them from being charged with crimes for stuff they say on the House floor, from being sued for defamation for things they say on the House floor, and to keep people from going into discovery, into the the horse trading that goes on in Congress about, you know, why a particular bill got bargained down a particular way. You might remember that recently Lindsey Graham uh, invoked it to try to avoid asking questions in Georgia in that grand jury investigation about the whole how he came to be making calls to Georgia about the vote count. Well, so first of all, I mean, Lindsey Graham was was successful in asserting that. Now, he wasn't wildly successful. He was successful to the extent that they wanted to question him about his official acts as a U.S. senator. And, and a lot of the relevant stuff that Lindsey Graham did wasn't really his official capacity. If he's trying to pressure Georgia officials to do something about a Georgia state matter when he's a U.S. senator from South Carolina, those aren't official acts. That's not covered by the speech or debate clause. But they weren't allowed to question him about his official acts as a U.S. senator. So it seems that if you are a senator and they want to interview you about your actions in your capacity as a U.S. senator, you do have this protection. You do. Lindsey Graham was partially successful, like you said. And what the trial court and then the, the 11th Circuit said was, well, but, you know, they can uh, question him about his communications with Trump, the Trump campaign about post-election efforts. That's not his job as a senator, about any public statements he made and about any efforts to sort of coerce Georgia officials, because none of that is part of his senatorial job. But they can't, to the extent he's actually investigating to decide how he's going to vote on the vote approval, then they can't ask him about that. The thing about Mike Pence is that uh, he's not a senator. He's not a representative. So you'd have to basically say that the plain language of the Constitution talking about senators and representatives in the article that talks about Congress is meant also to apply to the vice president of the United States sitting in his capacity as president of the Senate, even though that doesn't magically make him a senator. He might get to vote to, to break a tie, but he doesn't get any other perks. So the general consensus has been that uh, it's a bad argument and it won't work from both left and right, I would say. Uh, there's some thought that it's kind of a face-saving thing, that he can't just go in and cooperate. He's got to be seen to fight. My favorite conspiracy theory is that it's such a bad argument, it's meant to fail almost instantly. <laughs> uh, but I think people are overthinking that. So I, I don't think the effort succeeds. Uh, I do think he'll try to appeal it all the way to the Supreme Court. So this idea that even though the clause says senators and representatives, that it could encompass someone who is not a senator or a representative, aren't there other things that really do basically work like that in constitutional law? I mean, first of all, within the speech or debate clause itself, 
Isn't this taken to broadly protect senators and representatives from uh, testimony about their official actions that are not necessarily speech or debate, like, you know, votes that they take or or other things of that nature? I mean, there's also there's going to be a case before the Supreme Court uh, soon about redistricting that's about this question of when the Constitution says that the legislatures of the states shall draw maps. What does that mean? I mean, for example, you know, can a governor veto a map? Uh, Can a court draw a map if the legislature fails to draw one? Can they create create a commission to draw the maps. And I, I don't want to get deeply into that, but I, I just to note that there is a very active legal controversy about what it actually means when it says state legislatures. And a lot of, I mean, the, the reading that in fact has been dominant for more than 100 years has been that there are entities other than the legislature that may from time to time end up drawing those maps, even though the plain language of the provision says that the state legislature shall draw the maps. Uh, so in, in this instance, is there a way that you could read into this, that even though it says senators and representatives, that it refers to to, you know, people conducting the business of these legislative bodies, which would therefore include the vice president in his capacity as president of the Senate? Yeah, I guess you could, because you could make the argument in the sense that it's clearly on the one hand intended to be a separation of powers measure so that the executive cannot harass the legislative over them performing their legislative functions. So it wouldn't seem to apply in that sense to the vice president because it's the executive uh, harassing a former executive. On the other hand, to the extent that sitting as president of the Senate, uh, the vice president, however, briefly takes on some legislative role, then you could make an argument that it is supposed to protect that role. And it's not so much protecting the office of vice president as it is protecting uh, the specific speech and debate actions of somebody who is imbued with the power to take them on on rare occasions. However, even if it does do that, then um, they can only invoke that again to refuse to discuss stuff he did on uh, the Senate floor or preparatory to that. So again, it wouldn't seem like they, he could refuse to talk about you know the Trump campaign reaching out to him or trying to coerce him to do things like that or Trump making angry calls or stuff like that. Is, is that right, though? I mean, I, I would have thought that basically anything they would want to talk to Mike Pence about would be either about his role presiding over the Senate on January 6th or his preparation to do that. I mean, if Donald Trump is pressuring Mike Pence to throw out electoral votes, he's bringing pressure upon him uh, that is related to his official duties as the presiding officer um, in that proceeding in the Congress. Wouldn't that be covered? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, The question is whether these are acts that occur in the regular course of the legislative process and the motivation for those acts and whether they're an integral part of the deliberative and communicative process. Those are the magic words from various cases. So, yeah, I could see uh, a court – if a court's going to go so far as to – cloak Pence with this protection, even though he's not a senator, I could see a court going further to say, oh, yeah, you know, all the communications he had about the decision he was going to make about how he was going to exercise this power are covered by the speech and debate clause. That's probably the slightly easier lift than the initial lift over giving him the protection in the first place. But it's just not all clear uh, that this works. However, it's probably muddy enough that, uh, you know, the they have hearings in front of a federal district court, gets appealed to the D.C. Circuit, and then uh, pro- I doubt the Supreme Court takes it. Mm-hmm. 
finally, let's talk about Alec Baldwin. We have a little bit of an update uh, on the uh, prosecution being brought against him and also against Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, who was the armorer uh, on uh, the, the film Rust, where Alec Baldwin uh, shot and killed the cinematographer for the production in, in a terrible accident. So we talked about the firearms enhancement that could be brought on this, and, and particularly we'd gotten a very interesting note from a reader uh, named Caitlin, who is a, 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 an appellate public defender in the state of New Mexico. Uh, it was supposed to be a charge with a maximum sentence of 18 months for involuntary manslaughter being brought against Alec Baldwin. Uh, but then prosecutors are also seeking a firearms enhancement that would allow a, a sentence of an additional five years because of his use of a, of a firearm in commission of the alleged crime. What Caitlin Smith pointed out to us was that the law creating this firearm enhancement was actually passed after uh, the fatal shooting occurred. Generally, you cannot prosecute people based on statutes that weren't on the books at the time uh, that they committed a particular act. And so it seems like there, there may actually have been a little bit of fallout from the conversation we had about that on an episode of, of this podcast a couple of weeks ago. It does. And, and it appeared in variety, actually. So uh, apparently... Uh, one of the uh, writers at Variety, uh, Gene Mattis, listens to the show, and he was interested in this point uh, that Caitlin Smith uh, conveyed to us that we reported. And so he went out and started asking questions, and he reported on it. And then before you knew it, Baldwin's lawyers uh, were making the argument, uh, having apparently picked it up from Variety. Gene, when he was writing this story for Variety, he called Baldwin's lawyers. They were among the people that he sought comment from on this issue. You know, hey, is this charge against your client valid? And then shortly after that, they file some they make some arguments in court themselves. Right. Right. And it looks like they have the better of the arguments. And, and this shows a couple of important things. First of all, that citizen journalism uh, can work and to uh, bring things to light. And also that if I decide just to be sort of blandly affable and generic about an area of law, someone else will do the hard work researching it for me, <laughs> uh, which is a moral hazard, I concede. But uh, yeah, so Alec Baldwin has very good lawyers. He's got Quinn Emanuel, you might remember from last episode there, also were representing Elon Musk in that successful trial. They tend to be uh, ex-AUSAs. They tend to be very experienced trial lawyers, which is unusual for a big law firm. They're very aggressive. They're very good. So he's got real live trial lawyers to defend him in this, and, and they're getting aggressive. They're making that argument. And they've made a motion to disqualify the special prosecutor on kind of an interesting theory. Apparently, the the state constitution says that legislators can't wield any sort of executive power. And this special prosecutor was just elected uh, to the state legislature. So they're saying they're now disqualified from being a special prosecutor. Hmm. So they're, they're throwing some elbows. What's the reason to seek to get the special prosecutor disqualified? I mean, someone else will prosecute the case, right? I mean, I guess one thing is that the special prosecutor is a Republican, and maybe they, you know, Alec Baldwin, a very well-known liberal Democrat, they might be concerned about political hostility there. I mean, do you necessarily want to get the prosecutor removed when that just, you know, gives you a different prosecutor? Uh, yes, particularly if you take a very aggressive stance towards litigation, and Quinn Emanuel tends to. Uh, so they're, they're, they're there to, you know, they want to fuck their shit up. They, they, <laughs> they want to stir the pot. They want to throw elbows and make it, them realize that every bit of this is going to be a brutal fight, and so they better resolve it in a sensible way, uh, preferably by simply dismissing it. Hmm. Uh, so uh, that's a very viable strategy, particularly when you have functionally unlimited resources. 
But, um, you know, another thing that's going on, uh, Josh, is apparently they're going to resume filming the movie, Rust. Yeah. Uh, that was being filmed when this tragedy happened. And it's, it's important to note Alec Baldwin was is not just the star of Rust. He's a producer of Rust. And so he's yeah. presumably one of the people making the decision to resume the production. So I want you to guess, Josh, how I feel about that. How do you think I feel about that? <laughs> well, Ken, I mean, isn't this just one of these many circumstances where one's business interests come up against one's legal interests? I mean, you know, the, even a low-budget film is an expensive proposition. They, were, they had already done much of the shooting at the time that this happened. They want to make some money back off all the money that they spent making, you know, 60 percent of a movie. You're absolutely right. That's a good point. This is his legal interests, uh, his courtroom interests and his real life business interests uh, conflicting. And he probably cares that if the movie simply tanks, that a whole bunch of people lose a job if it never gets made. But to me, since the whole issue is what happened and what did he know and when did he know it and what was the safe thing to do, having him basically do a dry run through the whole thing again on camera <laughs> is less than ideal. Oh, God, they're uh, going to have to shoot that scene. They're going to have to shoot the scene and everything he did, hopefully this time the right way, although clients being clients, you never know for sure, they're going to say, oh, so this time you did it the right way. This is the way you should have done it the last time, right? So it's going to be sort of like a, a example of how it can be done right and these risks avoided. Um, and so uh, Sarah Fay, our, our producer, makes a, a, a good point. We have this growing list of, of fora in which people who are in potential legal trouble are not supposed to make public statements. And we talked about, you know, we didn't include Substack, our own home platform, uh, as one of those uh, places where you're not supposed to make those statements. Uh, is a, a, a major motion picture, is that another format in which you should not speak uh, when you are uh, facing pending legal trouble? Yes, you should not act out the circumstances of the crime that you're accused of on camera. <laughs> I feel comfortable making this a rule. I don't feel it's a reach. So what, one, one last thing before we go. Ken, did you see this email that came in about Sam Bankman-Fried? There's this, this question of whether he violated the terms of his release because he used a VPN in order to access NFL game day pass in order to watch NFL playoff games and the Super Bowl. I uh, did not, but that is, I could totally see something uh, like that happening. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he ought to know better since he's supposedly a uh, technology expert. But to be fair, the way technology is embedded in our lives, uh, you would have to think pretty hard all the time to not be using in any way a VPN or, or any other sort of intermediary like that. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. It's a pretty unusual circumstance where you have a Bahamian account because you were a resident of the Bahamas until your uh, life, financial fortunes took a severe turn for the worse a few months ago. Um, and so I guess that's why he would need a VPN. That's also probably a violation of the terms of his uh, TV account membership, but that's, I think, pretty far down the list of legal troubles that Sam Bankman-Fried might have. But yeah, I think, you know, the in general, if you if you have gotten bail under circumstances where, you know, people were kind of surprised they even got bail, probably want to be careful about those VPNs. Well, I mean, I think the purpose of it is obviously not to stop him from watching the Super Bowl, but to stop him from untraceable communications and mm -hmm. and that type of thing. Uh, I, I honestly have a little bit of sympathy here on this one, because let me be honest with you, Josh. There's like eight different boxes next to my TV. I don't have any fucking idea what most of them do. You know, one of those could be a VPN for all I know. And, uh, you know, you, you could set one on fire and I wouldn't know what's going to happen. So 
I'm a little sympathetic. And we are dealing with a man-child here, although it would seem to me that sitting on the couch watching TV is directly in his core wheelhouse of things he's capable of. Uh, I think that's enough serious trouble for this week. Uh, listeners, please tell us what you think of the episode. Send us any questions that you have about what we've discussed or any other serious trouble that interests you. Ken, how can they contact us? Do they need a VPN? They do not need a VPN, uh, unless they're in the Bahamas, possibly. They can reach us by email at ricohotline at serioustrouble.show. Or if they subscribe, they can participate in lively discussions uh, on the forum. Lively discussions. Yes. Yes. And uh, uh, you can go to the show page for this episode. You can find the comment section there and participate in that lively discussion. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosher. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with more soon. <laughs>